Okay, hello everybody, and welcome back to Things I Learned in Therapy, also known as Tilt. Um, I'm Chloe, and I'm here with the illustrious Brie, um, and we are... I am actually currently fresh off the sesh. I know we said before that we would it would happen at some point, and it's happened today, so uh, lucky listeners, I have come from... A therapy session. Actually, I also came from the dentist, but you know, I'm, I've been cleaned a little bit in my soul and my mouth. Um, the two are inseparable. Yeah, especially when it comes to podcasting. <laughs> um, we spoke last week, um, or actually, we're doing this monthly right now. So we spoke last month about relationship boundaries. And this week, we're going to be talking about power dynamics, which We covered a bit last time. Anything you want to say for our intro? Yes, I'm cosplaying Chloe. Uh, I'm just going to describe my outfit. I'm wearing shoes that um, Chloe gave me (laughs) that um, are very tall. They make me feel tall, and Mm -hmm. I love to feel tall. And I have on a black dress with polka dots, which the polka dots aren't really a Chloe thing. It's true. But the long black dress and tights and sweater are... Mm-hmm. So, just envision two twins, right, talking to each other uh-huh. across the table in the podcasting studio. Yeah, I was also I was thinking about introducing you as AKA Foxy Smolder, mm-hmm. but I wasn't sure if we were going to get to that in this intro. Yeah. Um. So you guys probably heard on our first episode that we were going to make our drag debut. Um. And that did finally happen our stage stage debut i think it's important to talk about um just because it's what's new and happening in our lives i mean the listeners need to know right you can in fact look up on facebook we're getting the instagram started soon but you can look up foxy smolder that's s-m-o-u-l-d-e-r i can't spell in my head and danny skull spelled how you think it would be Mm -hmm. um on facebook we will be there there's a great collage that i made it's really of our looks Mm -hmm. and you can check out some footage from or it's mostly gifs from Mm -hmm. our debut um it was very um weird queer affirmational Mm -hmm. maybe we should do a quick segment of how did that make you feel oh if you want that is a f- like a fresh off the sesh thing. I yeah. did talk about that in therapy today. Yeah, before we get into power dynamics, we can talk about what I talked about in therapy, which is feeling okay taking up space, taking up people's time. Um, I had a lot of doubts about our performance, especially because I'm not, I don't dance very well. I get stage fright. And so my fear going into it that I had to process was like what right do I have to take up five minutes of these people's time like they might have paid money they're here on a Friday night like I could waste five entire minutes of their time or embarrass myself to the point that this sacred place shout out to Bazaar Bushwick um, I highly recommend Beef Show that's our life now Mm -hmm. but yeah that I might be so embarrassed that I wouldn't want to come back because I would be too ashamed of embarrassing myself in front of my idols. So luckily it went well, but I did have a lot of fears going into it about 
how worthy I was as a person. Um, yeah. I definitely felt that too. One thing, <laughs> excuse me. Oh my uh, one thing, two things I was worried about. I had no doubts that like we could do it exactly how we practiced. Like I just had confidence in us. But one thing I was worried about was um, like, well three things one doing the like movie justice because we were doing something that was riffing off of rocky horror which is obviously like an iconic like has a has gay film slash has mm -hmm. a huge cult following um so like we had to do it justice right and then uh the other thing being um afraid of being um offensive mm -hmm. which like i don't know i think like good art like definitely needs to like push some buttons yeah i mean that's basically what bizarre is there for yeah so that was a concern but then like once we trusted ourselves and like got input from our friends i felt more confident about that mm -hmm. and then it's funny but like the third thing that i was worried about was like i was very like high femme that night i feel mm. like or i won't say like high femme but like Pretty femme. I was pretty femme, like m way more than usual, mm -hmm. like in terms of like whatever this the the assumed maybe standard of like like I had like long hair and makeup and like my lashes, lashes and like I had like body cut like body hugging outfit and like my face was like contoured to be like more like European femme beauty standards. beauty standards, which like I'm white but my face is not. Like, it was, like, thin features and, like, kind of more, like... Petite nose. Petite nose. And I was afraid of it being, like, not... Like, I was afraid of it being, like, not gay enough for some reason because we were playing a straight couple. And then, like, I watched the video yeah. and I was like, oh, this is really gay. Like, yeah. this is very... Well, this is so gay. <laughs> yeah, I did have some of those same concerns where... I did get concerned for a hot second there about how potentially straight it was going to seem. <laughs> I mean, for me, I was like, I get to be Brad. And when I was in the makeup I was and the suit, I was like so pumped about it. And I keep looking back at the pictures and I was like, what a man. You really um, looked like Brad. Like you, not you. only a man, not only an idea of a man, yeah. but like you looked like Brad Majors, yeah. but smaller. <laughs> <laughs> it felt really good for me to be, to like look like a, man that was really fun for me but um not that that's really what my masculinity would manifest as outside of the stage but it was really cool to see like masculine face contouring on me in a different way than I usually do I usually just do a mascara beard but um but it was we were doing a drag show for one of the biggest drag kings as a prudish cishet couple but then yeah our the point was that we basically became lesbians at the end because it turned out that we were both in corsets and underwear um underneath and had, our yeah underneath our outfits you know yeah so i just wanted i like just thought of that as we were in here and wanted to ask you your feelings because i realized we like totally didn't even really debrief about it we were yeah. just like, oh, sick, we did it. <laughs> I mean, I've been talking a lot about sucking my own dick these days. Like, like um, figuratively, not literally. 
I could suck my own strap on if I wanted to, but that's not what I'm talking about. Just that between doing a podcast about my feelings and doing like kind of ridiculous drag, like as somebody who's not a like at all a trained or experienced performer, that's a lot of space for me to be taking up as somebody who thinks that they're worthless. I'm like maybe all of the time in varying amounts, which is one of my core issues as a person is I do go through the world with a core of complete like self-worthlessness still to this day that I'm trying I'm trying to basically equalize it where my exterior reflects my interior more in terms of what I express and like I also bring up the levels of self-worth alongside of that um so I know this is very relevant for you too Brie it just I think it you externalize a lot more than I've ever been able to up to this point in my life. Um, I think it took me a really long time to be able to even, like, acknowledge that my, like, problems were real mm. like that. My main fe- my main feeling is guilt. That's mm-hmm. my main feeling all the time. I feel guilty mm-hmm. about pretty much everything all the time. Like, anything good that happens to me. I'm like, I don't deserve this or like Mm -hmm. anything bad that happens to me. Like I feel bad about feeling bad about it because I know other people have worse problems. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm right there with you. Um, I mean, my mom used to love to do the like, oh, it's okay. Like things are way worse for other people, which just I ended up having to give her talk like that's. That's um that's not very productive. No. Um but but I f- I feel the same way about like taking up space. I'm like maybe somebody else deserves this space more than me mm-hmm. or like who am I to put my voice out there? Yeah. Um but I think some of our goals are like for this at least is like here's a conversation we're not really hearing. Like maybe if we hear this somebody else will say something too. Or at least, like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I guess this is probably an important conversation for the listeners to hear. Like, we're fully aware that um, not everybody appreciates, like, two young femmes sitting on a mic about their feelings for an hour. But, like, the people that do appreciate it, hopefully it gives you a little something. Like, we're not forcing anybody to listen. We hope that young vulnerable openly mentally ill and relationship challenged voices will be in some way helpful or affirmational yeah I don't think I think it's a little bit doing different doing this than doing drag because nobody's forced to listen to it y'all can download or not you can quit five minutes in um nobody's watching you we didn't plant a bug in your phone to make sure you're finishing the episodes but and we also can't see the feedback unless you send it yeah <coughs> so but um, yeah and then taking space up like in a perf- like the performance setting like we were um the other night I guess like my my like um apprehension I guess about taking up space was somewhat alleviated when Lee who's organized the show was like you know I said I'd cap it at 10, but I love big shows, so I'm just going to, like, 
have all of these performers. And then I mm-hmm. felt a little more like, okay, like I didn't like take space away from someone else. Yeah, sure. I mean, I know, I think part of the conversation is that we are white, somewhat privileged people, um, like college educated, resourced um, folks. And we do experience sexism and misogyny we experience some queer issues um and like a lot of gender struggles and uh drawbacks of mental illness and how that uh, manifests in our lives but um i'm you know this was kind of the conversation that we had with lee is like lee wants to leave a lot of space open for performers of color um and there's like a a parallel conversation about making sure that you're not taking a space that um, should go to um, more marginalized voices or voices that have even less of an access to that space than you do. Um, So that's definitely something that I've been thinking about. I think, like, soon we can move on, but I have another thought. Yeah, okay. (laughs) We can... We can cut some of it if we need to. Yeah, no, only because I don't want to take away from the other topics. Yes. But um, it's taken me so long to, like, and, like, right, I'm still, like, struggling with this. Like, I've only, like, gotten to the tip of the iceberg. I don't, that's the wrong metaphor. (laughs) Just the tip has been reached of me feeling, um, I can even, like, talk about this stuff or, like, even say, like, oh, I'm queer. Here's a thing I'm having trouble with. Or, like, oh, you're this way, too. Like, I want to talk to you about it. Mm Because, like, I've definitely lived in, like, fear of being, like, yeah, taking up space that doesn't, like, belong to me. Like, I'm not, like, I'm not only attracted to women so I'm, like, taking up too much space if I'm not all the time experiencing um, homophobia when I'm, like, or, like, um, f- people, what is, is there a word for, like, when people are, like, just harassing you for, like, being gay on the street? Mm. Homophobic outlashing, lashing ba- out. Backlash? Backlash. Um, out- Mouthwashing. Mouthwashing. Um. Like, I don't experience that every day, so I am too, like, entitled and privileged to be, like, oh, I'm having trouble with this gay thing, or, like, I'm not all the time being read as, like, non-binary or trans-masculine or anything mm-hmm. like that, um, or trans-feminine, which folks who are trans-feminine, like, definitely, like, statistically get treated way worse, even though, like, everybody is like who like has gender struggles or is going through some kind of like physical thing has like I don't know I feel like those are all valid struggles that other people could have but then being like oh I have so much privilege um like it's really not so bad but like meanwhile I literally want to die sometimes you know what I mean (laughs) yeah um playing like the who's more oppressed olympics game (laughs) is not always productive no it like takes away from like the positive like helpful things that 
I could be doing. And then it's like, oh, my God, I'm exercising my privilege by being like, oh, am I too privileged to take up this space? <laughs> yeah, I think it's there's a fine line to walk about openly acknowledging your privilege and just constantly um, and like backtracking your own. I don't want to say impact necessarily, but basically the people who are on the top of the food chain in terms of oppression or lack thereof, um, like cishet white men with money are basically never going, at least until people started really getting angry on Twitter, are never going to question their right to space as much as folks like you and me are. So we should absolutely, obviously, be conscious of um, how much we feel like we're entitled to compared to, say, um, producers and performers of color or, like, people who sig experience significantly more homophobia or transphobia and so on and so forth. But um, I think we, you know, we have to fight for our space at least a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um then also comes the issue of I want to fight for other people to have space, but am I stepping on toes? It's so complicated. I think this actually also ties into what w our topics for today, like other than this. <laughs> yes. Um, we can get into it. Yeah. We are. The theme of today is power dynamics, which was kind of the was like the co-theme of last episode, but it needed its own. Uh, we decided. So um, the first category of this topic that we wanted to cover was the intersection of mental illness and romantic relationships um, because a lot of what we're talking about in this episode is um, relationship-based power dynamics. I know we just talked about like social power dynamics on a larger scale but this is more on like an individual relationship scale that we're about to dive into. Um, so do you have starting thoughts, Brie? I'm just going to read our initial question okay. because this is where we started. Yeah. Um, is it possible for someone with mental illness to have an equal relationship with someone who doesn't? Um, furthermore, can two people who are struggling with mental illness be in a relationship This is together? something that's sure. near and dear to our hearts. Mm -hmm. um, I used to say to my therapist that I wish that I came with a warning label that I was fragile and basically easily broken and prone to emotional breakdowns because I get read as very stoic and I felt like that was basically like lying to potential friends or partners um, and that I really needed them to know how much they were going to have to deal with when we actually started dating. I don't know how you feel about that. You, you externalize more about your emotions earlier on than I'm typical, like than I typically do. Yes, I found myself saying to someone that I was in, like, a pretty serious, like, partnership with that um, I wish that they had met me, like, in a more stable time in my life. Like, oh, I wish you knew me when I was, like, happy or, like, successful and not, like, a huge mess all the time. Yeah. Which actually was, like, how I felt about myself. They didn't necessarily feel that way, but definitely thought that going in, like, oh, I really, really, really like them. I want them to like me. 
oh shit, now they know me and I'm a huge mess and now oh they know. <laughs> I used to say that in my, the relationship I was in before this one. I know we have, we should like give them tight, like, because I, I toggle back and forth between talking about my current relationship and my previous relationship. Let's make a flow chart. <laughs> well, mostly just because I, I like name the partner I'm with now, but then there was like, there were two significant relationships in my recent life. Um, one of them prior, like pretty much back to back with this one, but we can just say my ex basically would talk about like, I'm so crazy these days. Like, I wish you knew me. Exactly. I wish you knew me when I was stable because I used to be doing so well and the months would go by in our relationship. I'd be like, I can't believe I haven't gone back to this place where I was like fun to be with. And you just are stuck with this. One time your ex said to me like, oh, I'm glad you're done with that work. Cause like, you're so much more fun when you're not that stressed. And I was like, oh, wow, that is so rude. I'm so sorry. I don't think he realized. Um, (sighs) That was pretty early on in us hanging out. I think he thought I had thicker skin than I actually did. But um, I I feel like he was trying to say, like, I'm so glad that you're not stressed. But instead, he made it a selfish statement. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, how sticky. But um, I, I did. I kept, yeah, I kept having that conversation where I was like, I feel so bad for dumping this messy person on you instead of this greater person that I was before. And then it turned out I was really miserable about the relationship I was in. And I, my therapist now says like, I was spending the whole time coming to her and being like, Elise, I'm really upset about the stuff in this relationship and it's my fault. How am I going to fix myself? And like, that's how she talks about it now is like, well, we knew you had a, like, I knew you were having a problematic relationship because you kept coming to me. And instead of saying, like, this relationship is bad, you were like, I'm bad. How can I not be this bad? How can I not be this upset or this anxious or this difficult to handle? And now I don't come in and do that because I'm in a better <laughs> relationship. But Okay, but that is so hard to know when you have are dealing with a mental illness and you know about it. And your partner either isn't or has is also dealing with the mental illness and mm-hmm. doesn't know about it because, well, for the reasons that you're saying, at least in like, I know each of us had mm-hmm. a similar experience where <clears throat> I also was like, this would be such a good relationship if I wasn't so blank, fill in the blank, mm-hmm. like stressed, tired, like not accepting of who they are. Meanwhile, like some of those things were true and like everything would have been easier if I wasn't going through such a hard time Mm -hmm. but like the relationship was not helping like it was like actively detracting from (laughs) my like mental stability and I like didn't I thought like oh this person is really trying to be there for me and like help me with my problems but like they were a looking out for themselves and b like had their own mental issues that they were not Mm -hmm. um cognizant of Mm -hmm. yeah I guess to step back a little bit I can sort my relationship my major relationships in my life into basically different categories of mental illness dynamics where I had one significant relationship where both of us were significantly either depressed or anxious and we were incredibly codependent for that reason and we had very many conversations about are we making each other more miserable or are we being miserable together and helping each other and 
um basically would trade off where like one person would have a breakdown and need support and then the other person would like pull themselves together because it was the you know the next person's turn to lose it and I mean I was in that relationship for two years and it was like that for maybe half two-thirds before I finally realized that you know it was I, I was in a stable enough place to feel like I I could even conceive of breaking away from it it really s- fucked the other person up and I still have a lot of guilt about making that decision because it's you know so s- that was that ex is somebody I'm still close friends with and it really impacted them for us to split at that time in their life um they ended up you know dropping out of college for a period of time which was I think something they needed to do anyway or was good for that which I what was, I was encouraging them to do before we broke up um because there were you know a lot of issues they were dealing with in their life but that was basically one was like the codependent mental illness then my next equivalently significant relationship I was losing it all the time and I was totally insecure and unstable and didn't realize how much my relationship was affecting that um but I was also going through a very stressful time with school and with health my current relationship I think I'm definitely the anxious one. We do both deal with depression, but I think therapy has allowed me a lot more to to not dump all of that, to to try to pull back from dependency a bit. I'm not necessarily that successful yet, but I've at least managed to have a relationship that's not like a, a depression vortex. Those are basically the three styles that I've experienced so far. I guess I haven't dated anybody who was like significantly struggling when I wasn't because I'm always struggling because I was really trying to work on being able to cry with you. I I managed it once and it was a big accomplishment that I cried about my, what was happening with John to you. Um, You did twice. Yeah. Twice. Well, once, once about relationship number B. Oh, I said his name. That's okay. He knows who he is. And once about relationship number C which is now. Oh, when did I cry about picture me this number B? You know, I'm I'm so like fucked up about this thing with number B that like it doesn't seem possible that number C is going to work out. It was just like mm. you were having a, a tough time because you weren't yeah. sure that that number C wanted to be with you and number B had just like abandoned you basically. Right. It's interesting you talking about this because I like a week or two before that conversation happened that we had, my current partner made some kind of joke when we were hanging out and it upset me that they were being silly when I was feeling kind of upset and I couldn't communicate about it, I felt, because we weren't in a relationship. We hadn't talked about where we were at. Like, how can I start having a feelings conversation when none of us agreed to this? So I just basically got really in my feelings. I didn't talk about it. And I went home. I don't think we could hang out anymore. But I did ultimately explain that I was feeling really vulnerable. And like I really couldn't communicate in a serious way. Because we weren't in a serious place. And we hadn't had the conversation. Basically what happened after that was I was like X, Y, and Z. All these things that I'm feeling. And I need stability and clarity. And you don't do relationships and I was like okay this is a bad idea and then Pat came back and was like something like I have a good amount of love for yeah 
but then also said, and for a lot of other people too, which is why I don't follow traditional relationships. And like, <laughs> spun it all out to be this big thing, which is not any fault of theirs. It was just like the, Pat always um, hedges. But this was basically one of those situations where Pat was like trying to say, I like you, I'm interested in you, but was saying like, oh yeah, I like you and also other people. And after that conversation, I just, it's interesting to me because I felt like I had a really productive conversation where they said I was interested and I was like, that's not enough. What is, what are the concrete things? Because I had experienced a lot of empty promises before that. Ooh, ooh, that's a big one. Okay. Is, I think the part of the answer is just like, like with any relationship, it is a negotiation of needs and a meeting in the middle. Yeah. And, um... I don't know the answer. I mean, we got kind of off track with this because I did have something, some specifics that I wanted to talk about in terms of that negotiation. Yeah. In like a, a specific experience that I have just in communicating with partners where one of the key components of my, call it mental illness or not, call it whatever, but my inability to validate my own emotions and my lack of self-confidence or lack of self-worth is that... I, for one thing that I don't really assert myself, but I also, if I don't believe in my right to my needs and the other person at least um, has conviction about their thoughts or their feelings, um, then we're at, we have an inherent power imbalance and that that's nobody's fault in the relationship. I've learned that at least that, you know, somebody else being confident in what they want or how they feel, you know, that's, that's good. That's not their fault that um, and it's not my fault that I haven't gotten there yet, but it is really, it, it takes a lot of effort and negotiating to work through that as a couple, even in, uh, you know, a healthy relationship that I have now to basically say, I need to have a lot of space in our communication, um, not even just space, but sensitivity basically to that just assume that I'm going to be working through a lack of confidence and like I've had to ask partners to say this way is right for me and make it clear that it's not they're not saying it's right for everybody to say I get where you're coming from and I I understand it because sometimes when we have that back and forth about anything having to do with my feelings or where I'm at, I assume that if somebody is saying, um, well, this, then, or this is my perspective, then they're saying then that that automatically invalidates mine. Like, we can't both have a separate opinion because one of them, like, because if they have a different one, it must be the right one. Do you think that part of that comes from when you're having the conversation, you um uh, consciously or not, are reading the partner as um, a male person who is, oh, like, yeah. more dominant than you or whose, like, opinion might in inherently mm -hmm. be better. Oh, I've had that conversation a lot, sometimes to the discomfort of my partners, that if I have frivolous interests or, um, like, friv like feminine-coded interests or emotions that that's automatically less valid. Like if I like a dumb movie or if I have a strong, vulnerable emotion, that that makes me weaker. So that's definitely difficult. I mean, th basically we're talking about an intersection of 
gender and uh, mental health mm-hmm. in our relationships because those things, those power imbalances basically. Even when neither of you is like a cisgender person, mm-hmm. there's these things that still are relevant and sometimes become more complicated and harder to call out because it's like okay well I know that this person isn't male but I'm like responding to them like as if they were and it's not even conscious or sometimes I'm giving them a pass because I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt that they are working on their own internalized um, coded masculine behaviors and they may not be or they may just not be cognizant Mm-hmm. It's like all a lot of like conscious partnering and figuring out how to like unlearn a lot of things that are like so deeply coded in our brains as like <laughs> we, we we talked about that prior to recording this episode that when we forwarded our sticky boy theory, I mean you were very concerned about it coming off like we were saying only people socialized as male or male identifying or masculine could exhibit those behaviors could have difficulty um with committing or could communicate in a way that wasn't direct or any of those qualities that we talked about and I mean Brie I don't know if you, you it you it really came a lot from you I think you can probably vocalize that sure I guess like the distinction here that I wanted to like make was if I'm if we're like talking about first of all if we're talking about folks that are socialized as male like that I'm not saying that that someone who, for example, was um, assigned male and, like, treated as male their whole life but is non-binary didn't have, like, the experience of being socialized as a closeted or, like, not unbeknownst, like, non-binary person. Mm -hmm. Um, But that how you are treated and read by society, by, like, everyone you meet, you are going to have, like like you're you're going to have like a certain effect from that. I like have been read as female like most of the time like throughout my whole life and that's definitely been like really drilled into me and instilled in me and had like such a massive effect on my life that it like took years for me to figure out that like I could even be something else mm-hmm. or more than that. Right. I mean it's it's pretty masculine coded to be commitment phobic basically to avoid you know to be interested in sex and not in relationships and to have difficulty communicating in a vulnerable way so it's absolutely not something that's exclusive to people who have been treated by the world as male but it it has an impact on the way that you you know it 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 reaches you even um, if the impact is to be like, oh my gosh, this is not who I am. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to take this in. Like, that's a response yeah. to your environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can at least say that as somebody who's designated female, like, I have a very hard time separating my identity from the world dealing with me as a woman because I've suffered a lot for being read that way, um, you know, in terms of. I haven't had to suffer a lot of discrimination in terms of, like, school or job because of my perceived gender. But, you know, I get catcalled like everybody else. I get shitty messages, like, you know, a lot of the kind of everyday stuff. And I feel the weight of, like, institutional sexism 
in terms of my reproductive rights and everything else I've basically said a lot of times that like I don't know if I can disentangle myself from identifying as a woman because I experience so much of my experiences and my identity have been shaped by being dealt with as a woman that it's I'm reminded of my gender a lot more because male is default and female is not so I think people designated as female um, are reminded of that a lot and people designated as male are like um, I think sometimes can have like very dramatic internalized gen like binary as well not so much in terms of the way that they're reminded of their gender but in the way that they are you know taught to handle themselves in their relationships okay but so I guess part of like also what we wanted to say was like this is all stuff that we've okay first of all like our experiences of being like female assigned people like learning about our gender and stuff like way after being assigned that gender is like you know everyone has like a different experience of that um but like we're I don't know we're talking from like our experience and how it's been for us and we also wanted to say like that the, these like toxic behaviors or like the sticky the sticky conundrum can be perpetrated by anyone of any gender right and that sometimes gaslighting or being commitment phobic or saying instead of doing looks different depending on like who mm -hmm. it's coming from and like sometimes it has to do with your with one's gender or like making the excuse of like well I'm female therefore I couldn't be doing this yeah like is just not an excuse uh, I think it's talked about a lot less for that power imbalance to happen in a queer relationship. Um, Damn, now that we're saying this, I, something becomes really clear to me, actually. This is, like, part of why tilt is, like, things I learned in therapy because it, like, is reminding me of stuff that, A, I've talked about in therapy <laughs> and connecting some dots, or, B, things I need to talk about. Um, and I realized I had an emotionally abusive a uh, really close friend mm. who was female. Uh, she had like uh, an emotionally and physically abusive boyfriend. And mm -hmm. so he was abusing her and then she was abusing me. And mm -hmm. it wasn't even me and her didn't have like a romantic or sexual relationship. It was mm -hmm. like platonic friendship. Um, but, yeah. it, but still, I didn't realize that she was gaslighting me mm -hmm. Um and like I took everything as like as as that she was telling me really to heart and yeah. like it really like hurt me and fucked with my brain because yeah, I thought she was my friend and I thought she was like another girl who was also suffering. But I wanna like I want us to do this third question. Is it still gay for a queer to date a straight? The answer is yes. I was gonna say I I feel pretty firm about this. Yeah. Yes. This um, is my, let me tell you my motto. Mm -hmm. I think this is important. Or it's not a motto. It's just like um, a pleasing thought that I have sometimes. Mm -hmm. Every time someone who is straight, I'm specifically thinking about cishet dudes. Uh, every time a cishet like does anything on the scale of like expressing interest in me all the way up to like us like actually having sex or like having a relationship. Um, every time that happens, the world gets a little more gay and it makes me very satisfied mm. and pleased. 
Um, That's funny. Yeah. Oh, you you thought I was a girl? Like, <laughs> looks like you're gay now. I recently had a conversation with a friend who's had a crush on me for a long time, and like we were talking about maybe hooking up, but like we were both kind of like shy and ambivalent about it because <laughs> we were like, I don't know, we're friends, and we were kind of like, ooh what if this happened and I was like well you know I am kind of a boy and they were like you'd be the first boy I slept with oh that's cute <laughs> and I was like you would be so lucky <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah oh my god um not that you uh, let me just reiterate yeah. you don't have to do anything like sexual or romantic with somebody of like a different of the same or similar gender to be like super gay yeah Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, like, have my own conflict about even claiming the label of queer because I've almost exclusively dated um, masculine folks or, like, male-identifying people. Um, I have a lot more experience on one end of the spectrum than the other, and I've found that my femme type tends to be, like, bodacious bods with mustaches, and, like, I mean, which is basically also, I, like, date femme like if i'm dating a masculine person they're like a femme male identifying person and so on and so forth i I date in the middle of the spectrum you're like i smell a queer (laughs) oh yeah i'm like you're like i smell a gnc person yeah like birds of a feather yeah because it turns out that i was also masking that identity (laughs) the whole time because i wanted to be desirable in the eyes of the patriarchy without knowing it but um oh my god we need to have a whole entire talk about this like not feeling femme enough a minute you're like oh i feel like less femme mm-hmm. not hot anymore <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> um we can have a whole episode about that i think for now um brie you have to sign off yeah i wish we had more time i just want to say on the like is it still gay for a queer to date a straight topic we did make note there's different implications like in private and in like public settings mm-hmm. and like one of the big issues is like of passing yeah the, I mean, the misgendering weirdness of being with um your partner and people are reading you as like a straight couple mm-hmm. and you're not in in that case fitting like not quite fitting into straight spaces and not f- quite fitting into queer spaces sometimes like it's, yeah, I have I, I'm grateful for the ability to pass and then I get frustrated that like I would have to change myself to get read as what I feel like mm-hmm. people see what they want to see. <laughs> yeah. Right. So this goes back to the like you're here's a set dude. Well, if you think I'm cute, you're gay. Nice try is they want to see because this happens to me in different settings, like in straight settings, like. Or, um, like, I say, like, non-queer-friendly spaces, like, on the street. You know, I get catcalled all the time. And these are, like, dudes who are, like, oh, like, a hot lady, right? And then either, you know, they, they think that they say something sexually suggestive to me, or they see me closer and they see my body hair and, like, my sometimes I have facial hair or something. And they're, like, oh, shit, like, that's a dude because they want to read... Um, someone who has those attributes as male and then they're disgusted Mm -hmm. right and then in queer spaces um like I guess there's certain like sometimes those things are like a signifier to folks that like I am gender non-conforming or like Mm -hmm. I'm clearly a gay lady and you know people want to see what they want to see and so I'll like 
you know, get get um, approached for like looking queer. Whereas like in a different setting, I'm getting approached because I'm looking like a hot lady to somebody. People will just like hold their hand up over your hairy legs. And be like, I don't see them. Yeah. They're not there. What are you talking about? There's a, there's a lady over there. Yeah. It's a catch-22. It's a catch-22. People will see what they want to see. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a big sticky mess trying to deal with your privilege and the right to take up space. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Excuse me. So if you want to find out more about Chloe and my relationships and or mouth sounds, mm-hmm. continue to tune into this show. So you can find us on Things I Learned in Therapy on Facebook. It's at Tilt Podcast. But for now, thank you so much for listening and getting to the end. So this is Brees signing off. And Chloe also signing off. We'll see you on the other side. (laughs) 